bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, December 3rd, 2013. I'm in San Francisco today, but I'll be heading to Las Vegas for our annual Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Conference. I'll start this week's podcast with information about the Budget Conference Committee. Rumors are swirling that they could be close to an agreement. In this week's New Markets Tax Credit section, I have information about a series of capacity-building initiative workshops that the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund will host around the country early next year. Also, I have an update on the New Markets Tax Credit Military Installation Act of 2013. Then, in our historic tax credit discussion, I share the results of a study of public schools in Virginia, schools that could qualify for the historic tax credit if the prior use rule was eliminated. I'll also share analysis about New York's historic and low-income housing tax credits. In our low-income housing tax credit segment, I'll discuss a report from Enterprise and the Urban Land Institute that studies the cost of affordable housing development and, more importantly, suggests ways to contain those costs. Finally, in Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, I'll discuss a report from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory about challenges master limited partnerships and real estate investment trusts face when they're attempting to finance renewable energy assets. Also, we have a request for comments from the IRS on Form 8835. That's the form that's used to report renewable electricity, refined coal, and Indian coal production tax credits. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I have an update on the Budget Conference Committee. The full committee met for a second time on November 13th. The committee heard from Congressional Budget Office Director Doug Elmendorf. They heard about the CBO's budget and economic outlook. Elmendorf presented short-term and long-term challenges to the committee. He said that the long-term challenges could be addressed by reducing future deficits. However, the recent sharp reduction in deficits, he said, has exacerbated the shorter-term challenges. Elmendorf also took questions from committee members. Now, in a blog post about his talk, he went on to mention that even if the committee is unable to find a long-term budget solution, reducing uncertainty about fiscal policy, even if only for next year, would be a positive step. Many committee members also released statements about the proceeding. Those statements made several suggestions for how to reduce spending or increase revenue. For instance, Senator Angus King from Maine advanced a budget plan that included cutting the corporate tax rate from a top of 35% to 32.5%. 
Lawmakers not on the Budget Committee have also been voicing their opinions on budget negotiations. Here are a couple of the letters that the committees received. On November 18th, House Appropriations Chairman Hal Rogers and all 12 chairs of the Appropriations Subcommittees sent a letter to Senator Patty Murray and Representative Paul Ryan asking them to come to an agreement on top-line spending bills by Thanksgiving. Obviously, that recommendation wasn't followed. Also, Representative Nikki Zonga sent a letter stating her budget priorities. Now, overall, the November 13th meetings didn't result in much visible progress. However, reports from numerous sources, public and private, suggest that Representative Ryan and Senator Murray are getting close to a small-scale two-year deal. Big picture, that small-scale deal is looking like some easing of the sequester through budget savings in other areas, and potentially new fees, but no new taxes, which would mean no addressing of extenders. I invite you to stay tuned for future updates. If you want more details, earlier today I tweeted a link to an excellent summary of the current status. It was written by Politico's Manu Raju and Jake Sherman. In new market tax credit news, I have an update on a capacity-building initiative that the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund launched earlier this year. The CDFI Fund is providing training and technical assistance to CDFIs through the capacity-building initiative. The CDFI Fund has partnered with the Opportunity Finance Network and others to provide the training. The goal of the series is to build the CDFI's capacity to successfully finance and provide services to community health centers in underserved communities. One of the primary components of the series will be Foundations in Financing Community Health Centers workshops. Beginning January 2014, there will be six free two-day training sessions for certified CDFIs. The workshops will focus on topics such as healthcare trends defining the community health center landscape and community health center operational structures, the primary credit needs of and the various sources of capital available to community health centers, and underwriting community health centers. The training sessions will run in 2014 on January 23rd and 24th in San Francisco, California, March 5th and 6th in Atlanta, Georgia, May 1st and 2nd in Boston, Massachusetts, and on May 21st and 22nd in Chicago, Illinois. The CDFI Fund was still finalizing two additional training dates and locations. The CDFI Fund said it will post information on those two sessions on its website as soon as they're finalized. The CDFI Fund will also conduct an informational webinar on December 11th, 2013. That webinar will provide more information about the Capacity Building Initiative training. To register for the informational webinar and for those training series, go to www.cdfifund.gov. In other New Market Tax Credit news, we have a quick update on New Market Tax Credit military-based legislation introduced last month. Two new co-sponsors have signed on to support H.R. 3439, or more appropriately titled, the New Markets Tax Credit Military Installation Act of 2013. Representative Mike Thompson, a Democrat from California, introduced the bill in October. Representatives Julia Brownlee and Sam Farr, both Democrats from California, have signed on as co-sponsors. They signed on in November. You may recall Representative Ralph Hall 
a Republican from Texas, signed on as the first co-sponsor in October, which makes the bill bipartisan. If passed, H.R. 3439 would direct as much as $100 million of new market tax credit allocation to investments in communities affected by military-based realignments or closures. The bill was referred to the House Committee on Ways and Means. You can find a copy of it at www.newmarketscredits.com. In historic tax credit news, I have an update on Virginia Governor Bob McDonald's campaign to eliminate the federal historic tax credit so-called prior use rule. In our September 10th Tax Credit Tuesday podcast, I mentioned that the governor had issued a statement in support of eliminating the prior use rule so that historic tax credits could be used to renovate public schools. For those of you who may not know, the prior use rule prohibits tax entities from renovating buildings and then continuing to use them for the same purpose as before the renovations. This means that a public school renovated with historic tax credit equity could not function as a public school after the renovations. Legislation has been introduced to eliminate this rule, and industry stakeholders have often voiced support for the rule change. Unfortunately, none of this legislation has made it into the code. In an effort to change that, Governor McDonald last month released a report showing just how many school buildings could benefit from the historic tax credit if the rule was changed. The report examined 2,030 of Virginia's public school buildings and facilities. That includes schools in every one of the state's 132 school divisions. It includes information about the original construction date, when each school was last renovated, if it's eligible for listing in the National Register of Historic Places, and the cost of estimated renovations. Of the more than 2,000 buildings studied, 817 had an original construction date of more than 50 years ago. The oldest building is an elementary school that dates back to 1837. Of the buildings that are at least 50 years old, more than 100 have not been renovated in the last 50 years. Most of the schools need several million dollars in renovations. An additional 410 schools were originally constructed between 40 and 50 years ago. That's a total of 1,227 buildings, or more than 60% of existing buildings. Those school buildings have a total student capacity of 842,000 students. Now, that's a lot of students that could benefit from the historic tax credit. You can find a copy of the report at the Historic Tax Credit Resource Center. At the time of this recording, Governor McDonald has not said what his next step might be in advocating for the change. We will update you on any developments in future podcasts and via our breaking news at www.historictaxcredits.com. In state-level tax credit news, I'd like to share some information from New York. State lawmakers have been examining some of the state's tax credits, including the historic tax credit and low-income housing tax credit. In the past couple of months, a commission launched by Governor Andrew Cuomo back in 2012 delivered a report on the state's business tax credits. Additionally, an unpublished addendum to that report has come to light. New York Senate Republicans also released a tax credit report. Now, most of the media attention has gone to the state's Bramfield tax credit and 
failed tax credit programs. But the reports also covered the historic tax credit and low-income housing tax credit. The Governor's Commission suggested that the state include a periodic review of the costs and benefits of the state tax credit programs. And the addendum suggested that sunset dates be incorporated into all tax credit programs. The report addendum and Senate Republicans' report also discussed the historic tax credit and housing tax credit programs. The addendum said that the low-income housing tax credit would cost the state $11 million in 2013. The historic tax credit was set to cost the state $15 million in 2013. Now, those were nothing compared to the $503 million that the Bramfield tax credit was expected to cost in 2013. The Senate found that stakeholders would like the low-income housing tax credit to be made refundable as well as be bifurcatable from the federal low-income housing tax credit. They also asked that the historic tax credit be made refundable as of January 1, 2014, instead of the scheduled date of January 1, 2015. Now, this is just a snapshot of information from the reports. I like to share this type of information because it provides a picture of how states are using their state tax credit programs. The reports from New York, for example, show that the historic tax credit and localizing tax credit programs are a tiny portion of the tax credits issued by that state. However, the value of these two programs is quite great. They preserve New York's heritage and housing, and they generate revenue at little cost to taxpayers. Many states have historic tax credits that provide similar benefits, and you can find additional information about those states' programs, as well as New York's, online at www.historictaxcredits.com, as well as our Affordable Housing Tax Credit Resource Center. In low-income housing tax credit news, I'd like to share with you a new report on the cost of affordable rental housing development. The report is called Bending the Cost Curve on Affordable Rental Development, Understanding the Drivers of Cost. It was released by Enterprise and the Urban Land Institute Terwillinger Center for Housing. The report is the first in a series about the costs associated with developing affordable rental housing. It examines what drives the cost of development and preservation of affordable rental housing and provides recommendations to address challenges. Researchers spoke with more than 100 developers, financiers, and policymakers in 10 markets. The partners held roundtable discussions in five markets, including Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, New York City, and San Francisco. And they interviewed affordable housing stakeholders in Boston, Houston, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, and Seattle. In the report, Understanding the Drivers of Cost, researchers examined how regulatory barriers combined with financing obstacles to make affordable rental development more difficult and expensive. They also identified several categories of recommendations to address these issues. In general, researchers found that there are drivers of costs throughout the development process and that they're intertwined. Any effort to address cost will involve collaboration between many parties. The researchers recommended six actions to address costs. One, streamline and consolidate deal assembly and approval processes. Two, remove barriers to reducing construction costs and mitigating delays. Three, shorten deal assembly and development timelines. Four, improve and align incentives. 
five, increase the flexibility of existing sources and create new financial products. And six, support the sharing of information about cost control measures and best practices. Enterprise said that the full report, which will include detailed recommendations and market-based case studies, will be released in January 2014. You can find a copy of the report online at www.tashroadhousing.com. And we'll post the full report when it becomes available early next year. I'd also like to mention a webinar that Novogradic will be hosting later this month. On Wednesday, December 11th, Novogradic will be hosting a webinar on the 2014 rent and income limits. This hour-long webinar will cover how the changing income limits will affect projects with layered financing. It will provide an overview of the new enhanced rent and income limits calculator, as well as include maps illustrating the changes in income limits from 2013 to 2014. Now, a word of caution. The webinar date is dependent on the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development releasing the 2014 written income limits by this Friday, December 6th. Now, if HUD does not publish the numbers by this Friday, which is quite likely, then the webinar will be postponed eight days to Thursday, December 19th. In either case, those who attend the webinar will have access to the recording for one year. So if you can't attend the event live, you can still access the webinar at your convenience. You can find out more about the webinar at www.novaco.com events. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, I begin with the report from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL. NREL recently released a report titled Master Limited Partnerships and Real Estate Investment Trusts, Opportunities and Potential Complications for Renewable Energy. The report discusses challenges, master limited partnerships, or MLPs, and real estate investment trusts, or REITs, face when financing renewable energy assets. According to the report, these challenges include effectively using U.S. federal income tax incentives, structuring the investments in a simple enough manner to be able to aggregate a large number of small assets, and attracting and retaining investors. The report examines the current MLP and REIT markets and some proposed rule changes, as well as possible investor responses to renewable energy REITs or MLPs. And before we talk about potential rule changes with REITs, I want to make sure listeners understand the investment mechanisms. A REIT is a mechanism that raises significant funds from the public and invests them in real estate. The key is that REITs are generally tax-exempt. However, that means they cannot pass on tax credits either, so they have difficulty benefiting from tax credits. Therefore, to allow wider investment in renewables, Congress would have to modify the basic REIT asset eligibility rules, as well as provide a mechanism for monetizing the accompanying tax credits. According to the report, efforts are being made to expand the definitions of qualified assets and income to include renewable energy. Now, for an MLP, the fundamental benefit is it's not a corporation that's generally taxed at the entity level, and it's not a REIT, which is a corporation 
that is, is allowed a dividends distributed deduction, rather an MLP is a straight pass-through entity partnership. It doesn't pay any tax at the entity level. Now, MLPs can be publicly traded, though, like corporate stock, which generally allows investors to move in and out of MLPs rather easily. Now, according to the report, MLPs could be used in real energy transactions if the definition of qualified income was changed to include income derived from energy technologies that qualify under the production tax credit and the investment tax credit. Now, to review the report, please visit www.energytaxcredits.com. And to learn more about MLPs and REITs and their possible future role in the renewable energy sector, I recommend reading Forrest Milder's article in the September 2013 issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. And if you're not a subscriber, check it out at www.novaco.com products. You can find more information there about becoming a subscriber. In other renewable energy tax credit news, the Internal Revenue Service is soliciting comments concerning Form 8835 and the Renewable Electricity Production Credit. Form 8835 is the form used to claim the Renewable Electricity, Refined Coal, and Indian Coal Production Tax Credit. The IRS uses the form as a means to ensure that the credit is computed properly. Now, no changes have been made to the form at this time, but comments are being requested, and written comments should be received on or before January 21, 2014. If you want to read the form and learn more about the Renewable Electricity Production Credit, go to www.energytaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. As mentioned earlier, I'm headed to Las Vegas for our annual Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Conference. And, as always, I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.